Hey everyone, Sophie here. Just a really quick note that this episode was recorded on September 18th, so you will hear us talk about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, as it's really happening. I understand that this happened a few weeks ago, so it's no longer uh, news, but it is what we were experiencing at the time. I also wanted to note that this episode contains conversations about sexual assault, and so if that's something that you don't want to listen to or that you're not in a place to uh, dis- engage with right now, please feel free to skip it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another stupendous episode of 28 Days Later. I am one of your hosts, Sophie, joined, as always, by my uh, rip-roaring and ready-to-go co-host and younger sister, Hannah. How you doing? I am doing quite, quite well. That was uh, a nice little callback, because that was how I described myself after coming home from work and having a long week and having one beer. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to talk, uh, here's a little shop talk. Hannah and I usually discuss logistics for upcoming weeks and things like that before we record. And we were like halfway through doing that and Hannah's like, can we do this later? Because I had a can of beer and I just like, I want a podcast now. I was like, I'm good to go. (laughs) Um, So Hannah, I know you said up top that you have a story you want to share with with the pod squad. So why don't you do that? Yes. So I actually have, now that I'm thinking about it, because again... Had a long week, came home, had a beer, <laughs> have some thoughts and feelings. Um, well, first off, when I was driving home from work today, I saw a guy who had a bumper sticker that was, you know, in Night of the Hunter when the preacher is looking for the kids and there's that shadow shot of him with his horse, like mm-hmm. at the at the road sign. Yeah. Um, I saw someone who had that as a bumper sticker. That's very cool. And I was like, that's really fucking cool. Um, I am currently about to start drinking the bottle of wine that you gave me about a month ago. Oh, my goodness. Are you going to um, like, review it live on air? <laughs> well, it was really funny because last weekend I organized my room um, because if you have been following through this podcast, I'm going through a breakup and my life is empty so <laughs> I was like, I need to do something. So I re- I reorganized my room for, like, the whole weekend. But then by, like, Monday, I couldn't remember where I put half of the things that I moved around. Yep. And there was a bottle of wine on the kitchen counter. And I was like, oh, this must be that wine that Sophie got me. Which, like... There were so many signs and red flags telling me it's not. <laughs> we should be I clear, knew- the one that we got you is from Missouri, and, like, that's a pretty rare thing to find in Chicago, so. Exactly. Dead giveaway. like, a bottle of wine that was not from Missouri. And I saw it on the counter, and I was like, oh, I must have put it out here so I wouldn't forget about it. So I take it back to my room, and, I, and I, I've been having, like, a crazy just everything since I started grad school. And I will have, like, a glass of wine before bed. So by the fourth day of drinking this bottle of wine, I was in my room getting ready for bed. And I and I come upon the actual bottle that you and Jeremy gave me. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, whose is this? And 
What's really funny is that when I first poured myself a glass of this other wine, I was like, wait a minute, was this open? And then I was like, no. Then I drank it. It tasted pretty funky. And I was like, well, I guess it has been like a month. So maybe it just doesn't taste right. Um, Because, again, there were all of the signs that it was not my wine. Um, But I drank about four glasses. um, And then I texted my roommates. I was like, I think I made a mistake. Does this belong to someone? And one of my roommates was like, yes, that's mine. Um, He's like, I got that when I was home. But it was already open, and it had been open for, like, a week and a half. (laughs) So I was just going to use it to catch fruit flies. (laughs) I mean, you got it before it had fruit flies in it, right? Yes. Oh, God. Yes, but it was really gross. But I was just like, well, in my head, I was like, well, Sophie and Jeremy gave me this. So I should really, like, you know drink the wine. Wow, that is Um, hilarious. Well, with that, like, glowing endorsement, I can't wait to hear what you think of the wine we actually got you. Yeah, well, here, I'll take a sip, and then I'll tell you my actual story of, like, what just happened that was very sweet. Okay. Oh, I love that, like, the sound of it pouring out of the bottle. That's so beautiful. That was just my, that was actually my lips smacking together as I really, like, let it sink into my palate. Oh, I um, thought that was like the air bubbles as you poured it. All right, I feel weirder about it now. Um, I like this, although I'm wondering what kind of like wine is it? Read the bottle to me. Mm, it just says Norton, Missouri. Yeah, Norton is a kind of wine. The Norton oh. grape is the state grape of Missouri. They're also I see. Very, they're okay, also very common in Virginia wine country where you and I have spent some time. Aha. It's okay. a very, like, dry, peppery red. Yeah. And there's, like, a flavor in it that I can't quite figure out, but I'm sure I will. And it's a bit odd. Hannah, I but want I you like to tell it. me, because Hannah does this sometimes when she's trying beers and <laughs> wines, um, what would the name of this wine be if it was, like, a guy you used to date? I always get, I, well, it's, I have to give it a whole profile, so wait, okay. give me a second to get okay. a real good taste. Okay, this wine is a young doctor. Mm-hmm. He is very professional in his working life, but his apartment and lifestyle outside of the office leaves a bit wanting. Okay. Um, and I think the name would be... Jared. Um, okay, so the story I have is uplifting, at least. Um, well, and it's just so sweet. So I, for people who don't know, I live with three men. Um, and sometimes that can be overwhelming for me, especially during quarantine, because I'm just like, ah, oh, I need a lady. I need some lady energy. Um... But sometimes I also have moments like I did today where I'm just like, oh, my God, I love you guys. And when I came home from work, I had a beer with two of my roommates. And we were discussing just, like, dating during quarantine and how all that works and just in general 
the difficulty surrounding it. And um, one of my roommates, who will hopefully be on this podcast sometime soon, um, who I've lived with the longest and is, like, one of my best friends, he said the funniest thing where he was telling a story. And when he was sort of, like, setting up the story, he said... He was like, so for the longest time, there was this girl who used to ride my bus, like, back when riding the bus was, like, a thing I did every day to get to work. And he was like, I used to see her every day. And she was, like, so hot that every time I saw her, I, like, looked away. Because, you know, I did that thing you do when you see a hot girl and you're like, whoa, that girl's beautiful. And then you look away. (laughs) And I was like, I laughed so hard. And I was like. I was like, Garrison, I wish, (laughs) like, I wish that was the internal monologue of so many more people. Not like, wow, there's a hot girl. I'm going to yell at her so she knows. (laughs) Or like, wow, there's a hot girl. I'm going to like, like slap her as I, as I walk by her. Yeah. But just like, in the most genuine way, he was like. You know how it is when you see a pretty, like, when you see a beautiful girl and you look at her and think, wow, she's beautiful, and then look away, so, like, because he's like, what else are you going to do, stare? Like, of course not. And I was like, buddy. <laughs> I was like, oh, buddy, I love you, because I love that it doesn't even occur to you, like, that's, like, literally what most people do. <laughs> right. But my my sweet, sweet Garrison was like, He's like, you know, so I looked away immediately, of course, because, like, he's like, she's so beautiful, I don't even want her to see that I exist. (laughs) (laughs) She knows she's beautiful, I don't want to be upsetting. Yeah, exactly, like, I don't want to add to the pressure she's under from being beautiful. That's very cute and very sweet. Um... So I don't have a story for this week, but I did just want to throw in because uh, we recorded our last episode before this happened that a very dear friend to both of us, whose name is Andrew, suffered a stroke last weekend. Um, And he is recovering nicely and has not lost any cognitive functions, but that does not mean that everything's just going to go back to normal for him. So I just wanted to take a second because I know he listens to this podcast and I want him to know that both of us are thinking of him and sending him lots of love and excited to be able to hear his voice in our podcast ears again. And so if you are a listener of our podcast and you don't listen to Andrew's podcasts, he has several. Um, Let me just plug, he has one called Milkshakes and Mimosas that's about Riverdale and the larger Riverdale universe, which means they talk about all kinds of things like... Uh, Archie versus Predator comics or Netflix movies featuring characters and actors from Riverdale. In fact, uh, I think next month you and I are going to cover the Carrie remake uh, for Andrew for his Milkshakes and Mimosa podcast. He also has a podcast called Triassic Park where he discusses um, all of the kind of monster movies and creature features that came out before Jurassic Park. And he's Whoa. actually in the middle right now of doing a series that. on... That's really cool. Yeah. He's in the middle right now of doing a series on Jaws, which you and I both love. Um, <laughs> so if you listen to us and you enjoy our podcast and you aren't aware of Andrew's podcasts, please go listen to them. And also just send him all of your good energy or prayers or, you know, Hannah and I both went to a Quaker school and Quakers like to say 
hold him in the light. So whatever you do, do that for our dear friend because uh, we love him a lot. Um, oh my goodness. Okay. This so, in, in the same respect, I will say uh, this friend speaks my mind. Perfect. That's very Quaker of you. The, the Wilmington Friends School would be pleased. Um, so uh, with that, like real roller coaster of an opening, Hannah, we're going to get into our film discussion. And I'm going to synopsize this week because I forced you to watch this movie. Uh, this week, we finally discussed the film The Turning, a film that we've been talking about maybe covering since before we covered 1961's The Innocents. Um, and we finally did it, y'all. So The Turning came out this year. It was intended to be released in theaters, but wasn't? I don't think. I think it came straight to VOD, or it came out in theaters before COVID, and I don't remember. Either thing is possible. Time doesn't matter anymore. So like The Innocents, The Turning is an adaptation of the Henry James story, Turn of the Screw in which a young woman in this film, her name is Kate, and she's played by Mackenzie Davis. She gets hired to be a live-in teacher um, and nanny for a young girl named Flora. And she arrives at this big, beautiful estate, kind of gothic-looking estate house um, with acres and acres and acres of land, and um, meets the, the woman who sort of runs the house, whose name is Mrs. Gross. Mrs. Gross tells... Uh, Kate that the children's parents have died and that Miles the older boy is away at school and so it's her job to sort of um, keep an eye on and and entertain Flora but largely her job is to teach Flora now in very short order uh, Miles comes home and Kate learns that he's been kicked out of school for assaulting one of his other one of his classmates and throughout the course of the film weird stuff starts happening and uh, as in the subject matter that came before, it is unclear to Kate whether something, well, it's unclear to the audience whether Kate is losing her mind or something spooky is happening. Um, so Hannah, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you thought of this movie? Well, just in your synopsis, I'm like, oh shit, were we supposed to think that she was losing her mind? Because I thought that the whole time it was very over that she was, there was a haunting like, it never, it's really funny that you say that, and I feel like now I need to preface this episode by saying that my new, like, my new schedule for grad school, I literally, like, wake up at 6.30, I do my field placement from 7 to 9 a.m., then I work from 9 to 5, then I come home and I do field placement from 5 to 8 or 9, and then I go for a walk for 20 minutes, and then I sit down and do homework for four hours. So my brain function is not great right now. And I'm like, <laughs> I wrote in my notes, like Anne Heche as her mother is unnecessary to this film. Um, Wait, in and this then movie? It, Anne Heche yeah. and her mom? Yes, she is. No. The, the actress that plays her mom is named Jolie Richardson. Really? Oh my god, I totally thought that was Anne Heche in, in a wig. No, I have a fun fact for you. Uh, Jolie Richardson, who plays Kate's mom, is the fourth member of her family to appear in an adaptation of The Turn of the Screw. Her grandfather, Michael Redgrave, played the uncle of the children in The Innocents. Her aunt, uh, Lynn Redgrave, 
played the governess Miss Jane Coverley in The Turn of the Screw from 1974, and her uncle Corin Redgrave played the professor in The Turn of the Screw from 2009. Whoa. Well, I thought, I found the mother's presence unnecessary, and then hearing you say that we're supposed to be confused about if Mackenzie Davis is losing her mind, um, I'm kind of like, oh, wow. I guess I was kind of losing my mind when I watched this. Well, because movie. wouldn't you wouldn't you I guess let me back up. Would you agree that in the innocence it is unclear whether the ghosts are real or the Absolutely. Is losing her mind? I think okay. in the innocence, yeah, totally. In this And I think I it's thought, the same thing in the in the novella. It's unclear what's going on. Uh yeah. This I found it to be like the whole entire time. It was like very much like this is really happening. Mm-hmm. Um um, yeah, I mean, so it's actually really funny. When I was watching this, because you said before you were going to do the synopsis that you forced me to watch this, which you did. <laughs> but I had also heard from you how terrible it was. And then when I was watching it, I actually kind of liked it. <laughs> um, I liked a lot of it, or at least... Like, I was interested in what I was watching, and I wish that, like, I think it could have been a really good movie and a really cool movie if it was done a little differently. Like, I think that a lot of it was was being made to be to make it more commercial mm-hmm. um, for the box office, and I think that the acting was really good, and... A lot of the relationships of the characters were good enough to me that I was like, this could have actually been a really cool movie if it was if it if it was given like the breath to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it wasn't, so it ended up being pretty pretty bad. But it was a bummer in a, in a way because there was a lot of aspects of it that I was like, I could have actually seen myself being really into this movie. Yeah, and that's probably a credit to. Mackenzie Davis because I think she really is like a really amazing actress and she's she's the kind of person who it's like oh I could watch her read a newspaper like she's very interesting to watch on screen um and so is um the kid from Stranger Things I think he's also Finn Wolfhard Finn Wolfhard I think he's a really good actor as well I also um, think the daughter is quite good. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, totally. Like, I thought all the acting and everything was really good. Yeah, Brooklyn but, Prince plays the daughter, and I don't know if you saw the movie Florida Project, but I, I loved that movie, and she plays the little girl in Florida Project. So she, she comes from, like, she has a, a history of having pretty significant acting chops because that movie is really tough. Yeah, so I thought that they were really good. All the acting was really good. And and I, I feel like the, the movie ended up having to be about, like, the scares and the creeps and not, like, the... Like, it didn't actually really get to kind of delve into the psychological aspect of the story in the same mm-hmm. way that, like, The Innocents did. Um, and so I found myself watching it feeling like, oh, actually, this would have been a lot better or this would have been a lot more successful if they had been able to do that, like, going into this. Yes. Um, and I don't know if you agree, but I was like, why is it in the 90s? It's absolutely pointless that it yeah, takes place in the so, 90s. Yeah, so my first, my first note on this movie is 
this is a period piece question mark weird choice now we will will (laughs) get in at the end of our conversation we will get into something that is a huge spoiler that might explain the choice of time setting but we're gonna wait for that for right now Mm -hmm. um so i think in a lot of ways it sounds like we actually agreed for the most part on this movie like i'm with you i thought the acting was stellar i thought all of the performances were really really good for those of you that remember our episode on the innocence and especially if you watched the innocence you remember that one of the weirdest and most complicated things in that movie is the relationship between the governess and miles where Mm -hmm. it's this weird sort of like he's a young boy but he's being like very flirtatious and sort of like acting too mature with her now i think they do a really good thing here by making the governess a little bit younger and making miles a little bit older so that it it still feels upsetting, but it doesn't play in quite the same disturbing way that it does in yeah. Innocence. Um, but I, um, so I reviewed this movie for Bloody Good Horror, and one thing I talked about is I think Finn Wolfhard especially does a great job of, like, he's playing a character that is simultaneously really cold and cruel and also very charming and loving, and he has to... Mm-hmm carry both of those things and make them believable, right? Because we are watching Kate, we are watching the governess struggle with how to discipline him and also feeling oddly drawn to him and not understanding why and not she's not setting healthy boundaries and he's not setting healthy boundaries and then she gets in all these really difficult situations with him. And I thought he played it really well, especially considering that's not... Uh, really a role we've ever seen him play. Um, I thought he did really well. I think Brooklyn Prince is really adorable and feels like a real kid, especially in the early interactions where she and the, and Kate are sort of like walking around the house and she's just like talking to her about the different rooms and things like that. Um, It just feels very naturalistic. I thought she was really, really good and she's able to be very, very sweet and cute and also kind of carry this like very unsettling energy without Mm -hmm. doing anything super overtly creepy. Um, So I want to read you for a second a quote from my review for Bloody Good Horror um, because I sort of talk about the way that I thought like the performances are good. This movie in some places is able to build tension really well. Like I do think Overall, it relies too much on jump scares, but when they don't use jump scares, there's some really good sequences that are really tense and stressful and scary. Um, And stylistically, this movie looks beautiful, right? Like it has picked a really particular aesthetic and color palette, um, and it just like looks really pretty to look at. Um, And so to me, uh, I wrote, uh, unfortunately, the turning is never able to become more than the sum of its parts. Gloria Sigismondi has, estab- has an established career in music video and television direction and its shows, but the writing from the team behind the Conjuring series is not quite as strong. So I think, like, for me, the weakness of this film is ultimately the writing, because for me, the ending of this movie was incredibly dissatisfying, and I also think that this movie makes some really interesting changes from the original source material that sort of create inter- interesting themes that we could talk about and then it doesn't really do anything with them um but we can sort of talk about that as we go so um i want you to tell me to start 
what you think of the woman who played Mrs. Gross. Because I personally, I thought she was good, but I loved in the original movie that Mrs. Gross was just like a normal lady. And it felt like in this movie they wanted her to seem scary. And it seems like the Annabelle problem of like, a thing is less scary because you're trying so hard to make it scary. <laughs> yeah, like, like, well, one thing I wrote is that because of, like, the Victorian setting, mm-hmm. I was like, this movie wants to be the woman in black, but mm-hmm. it's just not. And it's like, the, the woman in black was able to, like, strip a lot, like, to really do, like, a gothic horror and do it really well and, like, strip away a lot of the, like, cliches of horror by its setting and, like, having it take place, I don't know, in whatever the fuck year that was. Um, <laughs> um, but it still had some, like, legitimately scary moments and, like, and some decent jump scares, too. I mean, like, I was afraid to wash my face for, like, a month after that movie because mm-hmm. of the woman in black popping out of nowhere. Um, and so I saw moments where this movie was, uh oh, sorry, I'm burping. (laughs) Um, I saw moments where this movie, I felt was like trying to do that and it just like wasn't coming together and like, I wonder, did you think that the ghost was scary? I did not. So I, yeah. I want to I wanna wait to get to that because I think we'll talk about the ghost characters in a minute. Um, but I agree with you that, yeah, that didn't work for me and I want to get more into that. Um, I, wa- I just wanted to say really quick, like sort of to your point, for the parts that feel more like they were just trying to commercialize it and like I said, to the point where it feels like it's suffering from Annabelle syndrome where it's like, for those of you that don't know, the real Annabelle doll was like a Raggedy Ann, mm-hmm. which I think is actually so much scarier than the doll that they picked for Annabelle that they made like super jacked up so that she looks like she's on meth and like went through a wood chipper. <laughs> like, of course that's going to be scary. You can tell by looking at her. It's more scary when it sort of surprises you, right? Um, and I had that reaction to the, the at one point when uh, Flora is showing Kate around and she shows her her room and she's like, this is a doll of my great grandmother, Sophie. And it's just like a life-size mannequin with like a death mask kind of face on it. Um, Which like never really comes back and doesn't really need to be there. It just seems like such a weird thing where they were clearly just trying to create something and all that it ends up doing is paying off in a jump scare that's pretty, pretty pity, pitiful and like easy to see coming. So yeah, you mean when it moves its head? Yeah, it just turns its head, yeah. and we never see it again. <laughs> I agree, and that's what I mean. Like, like in the in the woman in black, and I haven't seen this movie for a few years, but I do feel like that that movie did a good job of having like little like trinkets and things around the house become very creepy and scary and I felt like there there was a lot of setup for this uh-huh. movie to be that way and then no payoff yeah in that so way I want also run- I also said in my notes at one point I was like um because 
first of all, you get like you get to this house and you're moving in and there's a fucking creepy mannequin in your room and whatever. Like that's one thing. But then later on in the movie, and it's way later in the movie, but like she agrees to play like hide and seek in the dark after a lot of things have happened. Right. And I was like, in what world would you agree to play a game in the where you have to wander around this estate in the dark by yourself? In the yourself. basement, too. They're not in like the in habitated parts of the house. Like after multiple creepy things have already happened. I was like, why would you ever agree to that? <laughs> yeah. So I do really quick before we get into talking about the ghosts, um, I want to talk about um, if there were any scary bits that were effective to you. There were two for me that really stood out that I liked. And it sort of goes to your point that I had heard going into this movie that it wasn't very good. And there were these parts where I was like, okay, this is promising. Like the the performances were good. We talked about... I thought that stylistically the movie looked nice and there were some areas where it was able to build tension well. And I was like, okay, so we've got something going here. And the two examples of that are early on in the movie. Kate is wandering around in the dark and she walks down a hallway and a shadow follows her. Mm -hmm. Um, And like nothing comes of it. But I thought it was such a good, like it makes you really nervous, right? It makes your hair kind of stand up on end and then nothing comes of it. So you start to calm down and then more creepy stuff happens. It was a really good way to build tension. Um, but maybe my favorite one was during the hide and seek sequence. Um, but that in and of itself was an example of them having a good thing and then overdoing it because there's a sequence where Mackenzie Davis is walking through these like concrete tunnels under the house with a flashlight and you see the ghost behind her. And it's terrifying because we can see it and she can't. Mm-hmm. And that would have been enough. I would have left it there. But then they're like, no, she has to turn around and see the ghost. And has to like start running at her and screaming. And that's when the real scare is going to be. And it's like, it was scary enough to have her in the background. Because then you have... That's immediately followed by a scene where Mackenzie Davis goes into like a storage room. And she keeps seeing a flashlight pointing at her. But because it's dark, she can't see who has the flashlight. Like... I thought that was all really effective, but the silly ghost running down the hallway like pulled me out of it in the middle of the sequence that was so cool. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Like when this so also when this movie was being advertised a lot in theaters when we were still going to theaters, The Lodge was also being advertised at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so was Invisible Man. And I'm gonna go on this like little tangent about this, but um like when I would see the trailer for The Turning, it would, it would always be, like, the trailer for The Turning and f- immediately followed by the trailer for The Lodge. And The Lodge, to me, was... I mean, I didn't like it that much. I thought it was actually just kind of meh. But to me, it was, like, a more commercialized version of, like, a rise of in horror movies right now where the where like the scares are so much more in the atmosphere and it's like there's like a weirdness that you can't quite put your finger on or it's the kind of thing where there's something behind someone and they don't see it like exactly what you said like the ghost being behind her her not seeing it and then it just moves on like I feel like it like in a way I think of it as like the hereditary effect where it's like Whenever I watch a movie now, a horror movie, even when it's an old movie, 
I always look in the background during the key action scenes because of the way that in Hereditary, there was so much scary shit happening behind the person Mm -hmm. without them knowing. And so, like, when I was in, back when this movie was going to come out, when I would see the trailer for The Turning and then immediately followed by The Lodge, I was like, this really shows, like, attention in horror films that's happening right now mm-hmm. with like uh, the reason why movies like Annabelle aren't doing very well anymore and like the nun thing didn't do very well either like that kind of scare I think a lot of people have become accustomed to or for whatever reason it's not working for people anymore right and movies more like get out and hereditary like movies where it's like the atmosphere is close to normal but just so something is just so fucked and like so off Mm -hmm. that it makes it so much creepier and so much scarier um and so i think this movie like you said is like with moments like that where it's like oh you have the and this movie had like what like didn't it say at the end it had like four writers or something yeah it had a lot yeah so it's like you get the one person who sees kind of the shift that's happening in horror and is like we're going to put the ghost behind her, but it's just there for a second and she doesn't see it. And it's like, like has a actually like good vision of what would be scary. And then you have the person who comes in like three rewrites later and is like, okay, now we need that weird moment from it where he does that like awkward shuffle run through the basement water. <laughs> right. Where it's like not scary at all because it's just like, what? <laughs> and it's like, right. we just need this to put it in the trailer. And it's, like, I also think that people don't want that in the trailer anymore either. Like, people would much rather see a movie where it's, like, they're just telling you, this movie's fucking scary. And you're going to know that because you're going to hear about it from people. And you're going to hear how fucked up it is. And you're going to go see it to see how fucked up it is. Right. Instead of it being, like, look, a ghost is running. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. And then I was just going to say that all of that, I think... Um, my final little moment of that was just that The Invisible Man came out around the same time and that was a movie that I felt did both like was kind of in the like in the like in a line on the line in between both of those like competing ideas and did it well mm-hmm. yeah definitely um, so let's talk about the ghosts um, I think before we get into the like how scary or not scary the ghosts were. Let's just lay down a blanket spoiler alert. We're going to spoil everything about the ending of this movie um, because I think we have to to try to figure out what the heck was going on. Um, So if you have seen The Innocence or you listened to our episode or you have read the short story Turn of the Screw, you will be aware that um, the longer that the governess is at the house and she starts seeing ghosts, She comes to think that the ghosts that she's seeing are the ghosts of Miss Jessel, who was the former governess, and a man named Quint, who in the book, in the, in the book was a valet. And in this, he was a writing instructor for the children. And in The Innocence and in the story, it is alluded to that Miss Jessel and Quint had a relationship that presumably was consensual but could sometimes be violent and he was a drunk and kind of a creep um, and could be abusive. So I think this movie does an interesting thing where from the beginning 
it wants us to be aware that Quint still was all of those bad things. Like he was inappropriate. He was creepy. He was abusive. He was a drunk, but they are very explicit that Miss Jessel was never uh, consensually a party to any of his advances and was in fact very creeped out by him. And I actually thought thematically that was a very uh, interesting thing to do. And I appreciated that we have a better understanding of relationship dynamics now that uh, Miss Jessel was probably never okay with what was going on, right? Like, I don't think many women are super jazzed about being in relationships that are violent. Um, mm -hmm. And so I appreciated that they did that. Um, I think we, there's a conversation to be had maybe about how they decided to do that. Um, but it seems like an interesting turn to take uh, and, and, and shift. A, in an the... interesting turn of the screw, if you will. Exactly. But then they don't <laughs> do anything with it. Yeah. Like, there's at the end of the day, there's no reason for that difference to be made, except to be like, look, we did it different. So I don't like, I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it, but I wish they had said something more with it. Yeah, and I agree. And that's sort of where I was at, too, with what I said before about feeling like they didn't take the time or give it, like, the space to develop the relationships as much. Um, because I think, like, the relationship with especially with, like, the little girl would uh -huh. have been a lot more interesting if I understood better, like, why... Because in this, is the little girl supposed to be um, the woman? Wait, what's the woman's name again? The Miss Jessel. Was she supposed to be Miss Jessel? The ghost? Like, the little girl. Was she supposed to be Miss Jessel? Oh, I see what you're saying. Because um, I didn't get that at all. Like, yeah, I got that I didn't, when I didn't either. Quint was affecting the boy, but I didn't get Miss... But in the original, or, like, in The Innocence, isn't the woman... Like, the ghost is... The woman ghost is in the little girl, and the man ghost is in the little boy. What, what the governess believes, it, yes, is that the ghosts are influencing and potentially yeah. possessing the children. And it's unclear whether or not that's happening, but that's right. what she believes. In this movie, I, I felt like it really came across that the little girl was absolutely outside of everything that was happening. Right. Um, and it was odd. Like, the fact that she would freak out about leaving the grounds, but that was never really, like, addressed very much or, like explained um like if it did turn out that she was miss jessel and that's why like mm -hmm. then that would have made more sense but they didn't really do that um and i agree with you like because you had sort of given me a heads up um about the the change in the relationship with quinn and miss jessel um because there's a sexual assault scene in the film and like, I I agree with you that I was like, when you told me about it, I was like, oh, I like that they made that change. Like, that to me seems like a, a, like a well thought out change. And I'm glad they did that. Mm -hmm. But then in actual practice, like in watching the movie, I was like, oh, that was pointless. Other than to be like, okay, so he was raping her. Like, it didn't really... Like, 
I feel like in practice it was way more like kind of just to be like, oh yeah, like, like I think because they didn't really do very much with it, it to me it felt like it came across a little more like, look, he was raping her than like, what about the dynamics of this relationship? Right. And I think the thing that to me made that more egregious is that they feel the need to tell us twice, like, they feel the need to have, like, a very highly suggested rape scene happen two times. Where it's like, yeah, yeah I got your point the first time, and I didn't need it then, and, and I, I didn't need it again now. Exactly. And, like, this is something that you and I talk about frequently with with horror horror movies and just movies in general. And, and television. And television. Like media yeah, we both in agree general, that yeah. there was a period of time where, like, every TV show, when it was coming on, being like, I'm prestige television, so I'm going to put a rape... In, like, the first couple of episodes, so you know that I'm dramatic and serious. Um, like, we're both very, like, you know, we both have our feelings about rape scenes in movies and TV shows. Um, and, yeah, and this was, like, for me, it did, it did sort of cross a line into a place where I was like, I don't need this. <laughs> like, I don't need this much. I don't need it to last this long. Like, I got the point. We don't need to go into it. Like, I don't remember if you and I had this conversation or if it was a conversation I had with someone else this week. I think it was you maybe, but I don't remember. Um, but I think it's it gets to what you're trying to say, which is that it feels like... Uh, actually, it wasn't you. This is funny. So two of my clients, uh, who are both in prison in Ohio, recently saw the film The Nightingale, um, which has a really, really awful and very long and brutal rape scene in it. It actually has more than one rape scene in it. Um, one of which lasts like 20 minutes and is really horrific. Um, and my client and I were talking about it and he knows how I feel about having any kind of rape or sexual assault in, in movies and TV. Um, and that I, and I don't want to speak for you, but at least for myself, I'm not saying you can't ever try to tackle these issues. Like, I think that you can, but I think that the overwhelming majority of the time they are done in a way that is very, very careless and thought, not thoughtful. And if you're going to include something this traumatic that is going to be traumatizing for so many people, you need to have a really good reason and be very thoughtful in the way that you do it. And so my client and I were talking about the scene in The Nightingale, and he was just saying how he didn't understand why the scene was so long or why there had to be more than one because it's the same guy perpetrator in both. Mm -hmm. And what I said to him is I was like, you know, it feels like I don't know many women who need to see a rape scene to understand that rape is bad. And it feels like when scenes like that are in media, it's for men, it's for the men in the audience, right? Like it's for the folks who like can't even imagine that happening to their body, have never had to experience it, have never had to worry about it as a, and I'm not saying that sexual assault doesn't happen to men, but I think like so many men don't even consider it a remote possibility in their life mm -hmm. that this could ever happen to them. And it's like, once you tell me that someone has committed a sexual assault, you don't need to also show it to me for me to know how awful it was. Like, yeah. we're just already there. 
I I totally agree with that because I I feel like especially in that in that era of television like probably I don't know like uh, probably almost ten years ago now like when because it was around when I was like a senior in high school I feel like mm-hmm. um so it had to be about ten years ago but like I think I think of especially like the rape. The rape storyline on Downton Abbey was one that really came out of nowhere and was really handled in, like, a very bizarre way where the story ended up being way more about the woman who was raped's husbands Mm -hmm. dealing with it than the actual woman. And, And it was at a time when, like, every TV show that was on at that time was having a rape scene in it. And... Like, I feel like in so many of the articles that came out where people were like, people were upset by this scene where the person who wrote it or who directed it or whatever, who created the show was sort of defending it. In every situation, they would say like, well, I wanted to include a scene that was very graphic because I really wanted people to understand. Or like, I wanted to do justice to like how those experiences really are because I wanted to like really communicate to the audience how horrible it is. And I think what you're saying is exactly right. That it's like, for most women, we don't really need it to be explicitly shown to us how horrible it is because either it already has been experienced or the fear of it is so real that Mm -hmm. like, we don't need it. Like we don't like, like you said, like even if you, once you've made it explicitly clear that that has occurred or is occurring, you don't need to linger on that to prove that it's really happening. It's like, that's all we really need. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I had said to you, like when I texted you after I watched it, I thought that the way that the, like the one rape scene was done in this movie where it was more like there, she walked into her room and or into a room and there was like sounds. Mm-hmm. I liked at first. I was like, okay, well, I appreciate that for being somewhat. I guess, unfortunately, at this point, like somewhat tame in its depiction of of what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciated that about it at first. In particular, like, it was, like, a sound effect that the... It was a sound that the bed was making that was, like, this is clear, this is unconsensual, and this is unconsensual. It's fucked up. Like, it's upsetting. And I I was, like, okay, so if that's all it is, if it's just that, and I know this is what's happening, I get it. I can, you know, take that into the story and move on. Right. But then it stayed on that for so long that it became extremely upsetting in a different way to mm-hmm. me and I was just like okay well <laughs> like I almost liked what you did and then instead I was like oh well then you ruined it <laughs> and then and then they feel the need to come back to it by showing Kate essentially like relive it as Miss Jessel and it, it just like that scene to me was ridiculous because it was like yeah I mean it feels it felt very clear from the scene you talked about what we were supposed to understand happened. And I guess the argument would be that the second time is when she realizes that Quint killed Miss Jessel. But I feel like she could have figured that out in a different way or they could have written in such a way that her death wasn't happening while she was being raped. Like, it just was so 
upsetting to me because I very much, I, I reacted, I think, similarly to you the first time where I was like, I heard the noise. I was like, oh, God. And then I was like, well, I guess at least I don't have to, like, see anything. Yeah. went on for a little bit too long, and I was like, I don't really like this. And then when they came back to it, I was like, I thought I was okay. Like, I had already seen it once, so I thought we were going to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's like, especially once you had made it, once you had made it that clear, like, you could have had a, you could have done a different, like you said, like a, a different way of being like, oh, so it turns out that he also killed her. Right. In the, in the process of, of one of the times that he raped her. Right. Like, there could have very easily been a different way to have that be a revelation without it needing to be, like, shown again. Exactly. Um, and and that finally brings us to your earlier point, which is that the ghosts just aren't that scary. So talk to me about that. Well, as everyone knows who listens to this podcast now, I don't do ghost stuff because I'm scared of ghosts. Um, that's a fear that's a little too real for me and I get freaked out. Um, and it was really funny because watching this movie, I didn't even feel like it was really a ghost movie. Like, mm-hmm. the... It just really did not scare me, like, at all. <laughs> it's interesting and, that, that for you, like, because it wasn't scary, it became not a ghost movie anymore. Yeah. Like, well, that's and, interesting. Well, and to me, it was, like, like, the look of the ghost seemed like it fit much better. Like, I felt like this movie was struggling in a place where it was like, is this a melodrama or is this a blockbuster horror movie? Mm-hmm. And the way the ghost looked was like, oh, like way more fitting of like a vintage melodrama. Um, in which case, like that ghost belonged in a movie where the relationships were explored more like in a longer movie where it had the space and room to be just super melodramatic and scary for that reason or uncomfortable for that reason in the way that, like, I feel like the innocence kind of was and, like, Rebecca is mm-hmm. as a movie. Um, but then it had all these, like, weird jump scares and, like, that aspect of it. I don't know. I was just, like, watching it. I was like, this is... I don't even know what kind of movie I'm watching. Um... And that makes it basically impossible for me to be scared by it. Right. It's like, it hard. Lo- literally, it looked so much like, um, okay, wait, let me, I have to remember. Do you remember, you might not remember, because I feel like this was a little bit after my time for to, to be watching Disney Channel, but it was definitely after yours. But it was like, there's a movie from, from Disney Channel from, I don't know, early 2000s. And it's called, like, The Scream Squad or The Scare Squad. And it's, like, Eric Idle, um, the the woman who wears, like, the woman who wears the red outfit from Hocus Pocus and the dad from The Proud Family. They, Kathy Najimy? Who? Kathy Najimy from Hocus Is, Pocus? Yes, okay, her... And then the dad from the Proud Family. I'm sorry, I don't know his name. Um, I didn't know her name either. <laughs> but they play, like, these three ghosts. And I know, I think it's Kat Dennings is, like, a teenager in it. And she plays, um, I can't remember what it's called. It's, like, Scream Team or Ghost Squad or something. 
Yeah, okay, it's called The Scream Team. It was a 2002 Disney movie. But Kat Dennings and this little boy are, are kids, and their grandfather dies. And after he dies, these, like, three ghosts show up because they're, like, restless and whatever. But I swear, like, the, like, the effects of the ghost in this movie looked exactly like the effects of the ghost in that 2002 Disney Channel original movie. Yeah. Yeah, I, like, I am so intrigued because, if I'm being honest, I would really need to think about what they could do to make the ghosts scarier. But mm-hmm. it really says something that... I find the ghosts so much more terrifying in the movie from 1961 than the movie from 2020. Um, Mm -hmm. And, like, to their credit, they don't use a ton of CGI. The ghosts, for the most part, are practical, which is pretty cool. Um, But, like, I just, like, they they just, the aesthetic of them just didn't work for me. And they, with the budget this movie had, it just feels like they could have done something cooler. I just, like, didn't, this wasn't, wasn't doing it for me at all. Yeah. Um, I agree. It just felt like, like, I feel like in this case, it felt way more just, like, lazy. Mm -hmm. Like, so much of this movie just felt lazy to me. Whereas, normally, I feel like if you're going to go the practical effects route, that gets you so much credit because it just shows, like, extra work you're willing to, to put in to get a good scare. Right. And in this case, I was like, eh boring (laughs) well and i don't know if you noticed this but speaking to the laziness of the movie one of the last notes i took says the shift from day to nighttime gets really hard to track and it feels like it could either be showing her mental decline or more likely it's bad filmmaking Mm -hmm. because like the last couple quote-unquote days of this movie it goes from like day to night in one scene like she like walks outside and it's daytime and she, like, says hi to Flora and walks inside and it's nighttime. Like, it is so... It gets really egregious towards the end of the movie. Um, so, Hannah, let's go Yeah, like, full... that's what I mean with... The, it goes into the whole lazy thing. It just is, like, kind of lazily, like, slopped together at a point. Yeah. Like, maybe they filmed a way better version of this movie, but then it got cut together in a really lame It's possible. Way. It's possible. Um... So I did want to note that this is uh, the second movie in 2020 to get an F on CinemaScore, and the other one was The Grudge Remake, which we also watched. Um, (laughs) Which you also made me watch. (laughs) Um, So Hannah, let's get into the ending of this movie, because I really want to know what your experience of the ending was, and then I'll tell you mine. Okay, I guess, like, if I had to put the experience, my experience of the ending into words, I would say it was pretty much... Because I was like, what even happened? And yes, I, and, you know, similar to when you were synopsizing the film, and I was like, oh, was I supposed to think that this could have been happening in her mind? Because I never got that vibe. So at the end of the movie, I was like, wait, what? So now you want me just to all of a sudden think that she was crazy the whole time? Like... I, that, all of that came out of fucking nowhere for me. Yeah. Because I, I didn't pick up, I didn't pick up on any of, like, I really didn't pick up on any type of, like, this could be psychological for her. 
at all during the movie. So the way it ended, I was like, uh, okay. It was like the ending didn't really give up too many answers for anything. And if anything, the ending also just felt like sloppily thrown together for me and was like, oh, cool. So this was all just a waste of time. <laughs> right, right. So I'm going to go ahead and give a brief uh, outline of how the movie ends, which is that, um, and honestly, I didn't even watch this movie that long ago, and I'm still going to struggle to tell you how it ends. But essentially, um, yeah. uh, Kate gets a package of like weird charcoal covered pages from her mom, who we have already established is in some kind of like assisted living facility for folks with mental uh, disabilities or mental illnesses. Um and then she becomes more and more convinced that the ghosts are real and that they need to leave the house as soon as possible. And while she's sort of panicking about it, Miss Gross confronts her and is like, you're being ridiculous. You're scaring the children. You need to stop. And while she's confronting Kate, the ghost pushes her over the banister and she dies. So Kate's like, we have to get out of here. And she goes and gets Miles and Flora and gets them in her car and they're trying to calm Flora down because, of course, she's terrified to leave the, the grounds. Um, and they, like, narrowly escape the grounds. And we think that the movie is going to end in some fashion where they have escaped the ghosts or the ghosts have followed them. But, like, that's what happened. And then all of a sudden it just cuts back to Kate opening the mail from her mom. Mm-hmm. And then, then what happens? Then, like, everyone just tells her she's nuts, and then the movie's Ugh. over? Basically. It was so weird. It was just, like, it was, like, yeah, it was, like, and she opened the mail, and then, and then this, and then this, and then, look, she's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. So, the way the movie actually ends is... One of my, I don't think we've covered a movie that does this yet, but one of my all-time biggest pet peeves in horror is when the twist at the end was like, your protagonist was crazy the whole time, like the Shutter Island effect. And listen, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you can never do it. Sometimes movies do that and it's good. But a lot of times when movies do this, it's just like, oh, cool. So everything I watched didn't happen, and this is stupid and ridiculous. Like, I remember going to see spoilers for a movie that's, like, 10 years old, but when The Uninvited came out, I was so excited to go see it, and I was so into it the entire time. And then the twist was, she was crazy the whole time, everything you saw didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. And I was like, cool, so this was all, in fact, worthless. And that's how I felt when this movie ended, and it goes very promptly into the closing credits, which is just like a tracking shot of Mackenzie Davis's hand, like tracing kind of lazily over Victorian wallpaper. And I (laughs) genuinely was like waiting for her to just flip us off. I was like, yeah, this is so ridiculous. And I was watching it with my partner who, when the credits came on, he was, we were both just like, what the fuck just happened? And then he goes, yeah, but at least we got that knockoff American Horror Story theme song out of it. <laughs> Which is, like, very accurate. I mean, yeah. Like, and even with, like, the death of Miss Gross, it was, like, it was pointless. Like, like she's confronting her, being like, you knew what was happening and you didn't do anything. And, like, again, when it's, like, they could be confronting like the idea that there were people working at this estate where there was like an actively sexually abusive relationship going on. Mm -hmm. And 
Miss Gross is just basically like, you're being scary to the children. And then, boom, she's dead. Right. Like, even that was, like, inconsequential. And, like, they didn't really do much with making Miss Gross creepy either, other than, like, they were like, look, she's an old lady. Right. Right. <laughs> and I didn't like that very much either, because I was like, I mean, I don't know. I didn't like, yeah, all yeah. of that. It was the whole last, like, half hour of the movie, I was just like, this is so dumb. Now, Hannah, I'm going to read you something that I saw on the IMDb trivia that uh, blew my mind, but also I was like, I don't think this is really what happened. So someone on IMDb trivia has an idea for the movie's overall meaning. This will also explain the time setting and the entire ending of the movie. Are you ready? I'm ready. I want your reaction to this, but not until I'm done. So try to hold your reaction in until I finish reading. The, <laughs> mute yourself if you have to. The movie illustrates how Kate turned into a lunatic housed in an asylum, hence the title. This is alluded to in the beginning when the eye of an older woman reliving the attack of the previous nanny is cut into the eye of Kate, portrayed by Mackenzie Davis, suggesting that they are the same person. The flashback opens with Kurt Cobain's suicide, which occurred in 1904, chronicling young Kate. The scene depicting Kate escaping with the children is imagined, and what truly occurred was that the scene shown in its succeeding flashback where the children note that Kate is crazy when she asks them if they've seen the ghosts. In the last scene, Kate is horrified when she realizes that it is she who has been held in an asylum, not her mother. When paused, the figure Kate is frightened by in the pool is simply the woman portrayed by Jolie Richardson, her older self in the present day. That's the one who plays her mom. This explanation, this explains the drawings on the pool wall of Kate recollect, recollecting her horrible experiences at the mansion. So to recap, this person thinks that Kate's mom is actually a grown-up Kate and that Kate really did just lose her mind and has been in an asylum this entire time. So the asylum sequences are present day and the 1994 stuff is when Kate was young. Um, I would say, like, that would have been a way cooler movie. Yeah, I didn't um, see any evidence of that, but I think that's a cool twist, if that's what cool, they were Cool idea. For. It's like looking at, uh, it's kind of like, you know when someone draws, like, when you, when you play that game at a restaurant where you draw a scribble, and then you hand it to somebody and they have to make it into something? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like doing that with this movie. Yep. I'm trying to think, like, that scene where she was with her... Like, I could kind of see that in the scene where she's with her mom in the empty pool and her mom's drawing. The staff come to take her mom and they only speak to her mom and don't speak to her, mm-hmm. which I did think was weird. Um, but again, because they didn't really, they didn't really go, like, they set, I feel like they set up a lot of things and didn't really explore it. Um, like, that, that could be a cool explanation, but I don't feel like it was actually warranted and what was what the was given ma- to us. and like they had two different names that's important it's not yeah. like it's not like her mom different, didn't they also have, have a different name. color hair right um and if that's what was happening then what was the mail that she got from her mom yeah and like why was her mom in an empty pool i don't know <laughs> So anyway, uh, this movie was 
weird and wild. I am intrigued, though. Hannah and I talked about this a little bit off the air last week. Um, but uh, my favorite, Mike Flanagan, is doing a follow-up to The Haunting of Hill House called The Haunting of Bly Manor, which will be a second season of the anthology series and will be retelling uh, his version of The Turn of the Screw. And so, Hannah, I'm interested to see if you would be willing to watch it and B, if you'd be willing to cover it. It's going to be good. It's tough. It's a tough question. I think it, it also looks like it's set in the 80s or the 90s. It does look Correct. like it's dated, yes. Yes. It's hard to so, tell, but that's the vibe I'm getting from the advertisements. I don't know. I've thought about this a lot because I've heard so much about Haunting of Hill House being really good. It's amazing. Haunting of Hill House, I stand by the fact that that is just like a near flawless piece of miniseries work. And it's just like both beautiful and super emotional and really well, scary. And here's the thing. Like, I love the first season of American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. And that's all ghosts. Mm-hmm. But it was, like, ghosts in a way that was more, I don't know, like, approachable for me. Right. Sure, sure. Um, so I wonder if I could handle it because of that. But at the same time, I'm scared that if I'm too scared, especially now that I'm single, like, I don't have anyone that I can rely on if I'm scared. <laughs> well, maybe talk to your roommates who notably also enjoy horror and see if any of them would be willing to watch it with you. Well, yeah, but I can't, like, climb into bed with them if I'm scared. Well, I mean, let's cross that bridge when we get to it. But first, find someone to watch it with you. <laughs> so I I will say, I to answer your question, I have thought about uh, thought about this, um, at least with The Haunting of Hill House. I didn't know until you told me that the next scene, or the next season was going to be, um, was going to be The Turn of the Screw. So I thought, like, oh, maybe... But I feel like I also need to watch the first season so I know a little bit more kind of, like, what I'm getting into, I guess. Maybe. I mean, story-wise, um, they won't overlap at all. Of course, so. yeah. Also, I know that that actress from You is in it, and I hated her in You. Which actress? Um, The girl who played Love. From the second... Did you ever watch the second season of You? Sophie? I muted my microphone because I was typing. I <laughs> I was trying to IMDB. Uh, you did watch the second season of You, right? We I watched like two it. episodes. Oh, so maybe you didn't really see her in it. I did, but I don't remember who played her. She was so annoying in that show that I'm worried that watching her and something else, I'll just be annoyed by her. I'm trying to find who you're talking about. I don't know. I don't know anything about Haunting of Hill House, but I know she was in it. I think she wears like a nightgown. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. <laughs> no, it's not her. Okay, well, I'll figure it out. Doesn't matter. I know that she's like my age and that kind of annoyed me. All right, hold on. Now I just need to see. Ooh, like Alex is going to be in hanging. it. Hannah, it's going to be so good. Um, Who's in it? Did you say Miley Cyrus is in it? Alex Esso? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It sounds yeah. like Miley Cyrus. Oh, you don't like, um, you don't like Victoria Pedretti? Yes. 
It's her. Oh, I love her. She's also in Haunting of Hill House. Um, Mike Flanagan really likes her. I told, I said that. I said, I know she's in Haunting of Hill House. Like, that's like her thing. Like her big, that was like her big break. I completely forgot she was she's in you. so, but you didn't watch the, the full second season of you. She is so annoying on that show. Well, you should, you really should watch. Okay, so for anyone who's at home being like, who is this? Uh, it's the woman who played Nell um, on Haunting of Hill House. I would highly recommend that you watch Haunting of Hill House because I think it might bring you back around on her. She's really, mm-hmm. really good in it. I don't know. I, I really felt like in you, so much of her acting is just like, Flaring her nostrils and opening her eyes really wide. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see whether or not you watch Haunting of Hill House or Bly Manor. So listeners, stay tuned and we will see if uh, Hannah's going to let me do either of those things. Uh, Hannah, on our very, very scientific and important rating scale, how many Bloody Marys out of five would you give to The Turning? Truly, I feel like I would give this movie, like, zero if I could. Because <laughs> it was, like, because of the ending and everything, it felt, like, inconsequential to me. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll just give it, like, one. Like, okay. a Bloody Mary, but they... It's, like, the bottom of the... when It's a place where they make their own mix, and it's, like, the bottom of it, where it's, like, just kind of, like... Ugh. like a, you just get, like, pepper stuck it? in your teeth for days? Yeah, what's that when it's like the bottom of like a of like a bog? It's like sill. Ugh. Shit. Silt. Silt. There you go. That's disgusting. It's like Bloody Mary silt. That is disgusting. What an image. Um, yeah, I I don't think I'm gonna do much much higher than you. I'm gonna because like like we said because I think this movie does have some positive aspects as far as the performances and some of the tension building. Um. I'm going to give it two stars, but I'm, uh, or two Bloody Marys, but I'm not going any higher than that. So I'm just doing, like, two Bloody Marys with, like, well vodka and tomato juice. Not even mixed, just tomato juice. Yeah. Yeah. Trash. That feels trash. right. That feels right. Um, <laughs> so, so what you're saying is it's trash. It's bad. Um. So really quickly for our in later news this week, I had something picked out that we were going to cover. And then as Hannah and I were recording, we received news that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away. And so I just wanted to take a moment to sort of um, speak to her legacy, because obviously she was an amazing woman and a really, really influential and important part of the Supreme Court. Um, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg served on the Supreme Court since August 10th, 1993, and she was only the second woman ever appointed to the Supreme Court after Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, she went to Harvard. She's been on the Supreme Court since I was born. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> truly. Um, in the fall of 1956, she enrolled in Harvard Law School, where she was one of only nine women in a class of 500 men. The dean of Harvard Law invited all the female law students to dinner at his family home where he asked them, why are you at Harvard Law School taking the place of a man? Um, At the start of her legal career, she encountered a lot of difficulty gaining employment. For example, she tried to get a clerkship uh, with Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, and he rejected her because she was a woman. Uh, 
People will probably know uh, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has always been a very vocal supporter of both uh, reproductive rights and um, has always worked to try to close um, discrimination gaps around gender. Um, She's someone who spoke very highly of the Equal Rights Amendment and and, uh, even in most in years more recently sort of spoken about the need to have something like the ERA on the books and added to the Constitution. Um, A couple of really quick fun facts. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, let's see, was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 2002, and researchers at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History gave a species of praying mantis the name Elomantis (laughs) Ginsburgae after Ginsburg. The name was given to her because the neck plate of the Ilomantis Ginsburg bears a resemblance to the Jabot, which Ginsburg was well known for wearing. Moreover, the new species was identified based upon the female insect's genitalia instead of based upon the male of the species. The researchers noted that the name was a nod to Ginsburg's fight for gender equality. So um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died uh, as we record today, September 18th. She was 87 Um, she died of complications of pancreatic cancer. And it says that days before she passed, she dictated a statement to her granddaughter saying, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Um, so I know this is a really heavy piece of in later news. I know that Hannah and I were both really, uh, shaken to, to learn this. And I think had a reaction that a lot of folks are likely going to have, which is, just sort of sadness, but also abject terror um, at what could happen to the U.S. Supreme Court without Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so I wanted to read two things really quickly. Um, One is um, a tweet by Paula Pell, who said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was never afraid and neither should we be. Choose to fight over fear. And then Brittany Packnett um, tweeted, I know that the popular analysis is going to be we're screwed and I feel you, but remember RBG didn't go out like that and neither are we. I'm not, I'm not speaking that and I'm not believing that. We're going to fight. That's what we're going to do. I'll be realistic. The fight just got way harder, but I won't be fatalistic. Not with my ancestors' blood running through my veins. So everybody remember that we can all take some time to mourn and to be afraid. But at the end of the day, we need to just do what RBG would have done and get up and keep fighting. In a moment when the passing of RBG is really scary um, and feels like, like, you know, like a huge, it's a huge loss and it is very scary. Um, And the whole like, when God opens the door or closes the door, opens a window or whatever the fuck, um, that there is something to celebrate in the fact that um, Sarah McBride won the primary in Delaware and is um, most likely going to become the first transgender state senator, um, which is awesome in and of itself, but also awesome because we know her. <laughs> well, we should say we grew up with her. We have not. We are not in close contact with her now. Although I always wish that I was because she's just like yes, such a like hero. you guys were super tight as children. So yeah, um, it's awesome and it's really so exciting. That's a really in good, a moment that's a really good of, tag to add, Hannah. Sort of like in a, a moment of like major despair. That's also something 
to focus on to keep to keep the light going. Well, thank you, Hannah. I think that is perfect. Um, so everyone remember to take care of yourself, wear your mask and keep fighting. And Hannah, is there anything else you'd like to tell the listeners? Uh, JK, always be after sex. <laughs> <laughs>